welcome to everyone who's here. Um, there may be others coming. Um, my name is Nicole. I'll be um, co-hosting this meeting with Avery tonight. Um, so today our topic is women in the labor movement part three. So Avery will start with some background in history, uh, mostly focusing on the early to mid 20th century. And then I will be sharing some more history context and some video clips about two, um, two labor events in the 20th century. So Avery, you wanna, you wanna go ahead? Yeah, thanks, Nicole. I'll get started. And uh, we have maybe a little bit longer talks than usual because there's just so much to talk about. But before Nicole shares with us some of the firsthand accounts of women's roles in the high points of the U.S. labor movement, I'm going to review what we've learned in parts one and two and also set the stage a little more. This is part three. So the U.S. labor movement raised living standards for three generations of US workers between 1935 and 1980 through massive militant strike waves that won widespread industrial and public sector union recognition, as well as redistributive laws like social security and unemployment insurance. The turning point was the organization of the fiercely anti-union factory corporations, the largest ones in the world, led by General Motors, U.S. Steel, and General Electric in 1937. Before that, most unions organized smaller numbers of workers in exclusive craft unions. The early craft unions in the Republic were all male. But in the 1830s, it was then that the first major attempt to organize the factories was waged. And this was done in New England textile factories, their workforce made up of women. The sexism of male-only unions was one factor that buried the early labor advance into factories and actually delayed it by a century. In the Civil War, women flooded into work outside the home, and male unions for the first time began to accept women workers. In 1866, newly freed black women laundresses organized for the first time in Mississippi. In the 1880s, the Knights of Labor, who made another stormy attempt to move from craft to industrial unionism, contained 50,000 women members. The Knights, though, were quickly crushed, but from that time, one of their heroes, Lucy Parsons, the Afro-Mexican wife of framed and executed labor anarchist Albert Parsons emerged as a national spokesperson for labor. Parsons later helped found the Industrial Workers of the World or the IWW in 1905. She advocated for the organizing of women workers, something the IWW carried out on the basis of militant equality. Samuel Gompers is much larger. American Federation of Labor, or AFL, contained a mix of unions, some accepting and others rejecting women as members. Some unions had something that we haven't talked about before, but which is important to our story tonight. And this was the Women's Auxiliary. 
which organized the wives of male workers to perform duties like raising money and organizing kitchens to feed the strikers during strikes. So remember the women's auxiliaries. In 1903, socialists organized the Women's Trade Union League to promote unionization of women. The AFL recognized the league and that same year, the AFL endorsed voting rights for women, something not granted in this country until 1920. But the AFL was silent on whether non-white women should also gain that right. Then in 1909, hundreds of thousands of mostly Eastern European immigrant women and girls, including some black women workers, began a strike wave that built the International Ladies Garment Workers and the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Unions into large organizations, which they weren't before. And these became early strongholds of industrial unionism in the mostly craft union movement, women once again leading the way to the advance. And those same unions later supported the full-scale assault on the factories, on industry in the 1930s. And they brought women into the unions in permanent mass numbers for the first time that have steadily grown as a percentage since that time. And today, women are 47% of union members. Their heroism against beatings and jail also helped inspire the creation of International Women's Day by the German Marxist Clara Zetkin. Originally called International Working Women's Day, this holiday commemorating the struggles of US women workers played an important role in world events like the Russian Revolution and in ending the First World War. The Russian Revolution began on International Women's Day 1917 when women workers there held a demonstration. Refusing to disperse, this demonstration grew until a week later the Tsar was forced from power when his own troops refused to fire on it and instead joined the workers. That revolution later granted women the right to vote, which some historians argue put pressure on the US and other countries, not wanting to look less advanced than Russia, to finally grant women the right to vote here and elsewhere. Russia also simplified divorce laws, and for a time, they legalized abortion and homosexuality, recognized gay marriages, and allowed sex reassignment surgery, all that in the early 20s. That revolution also spread to Germany in 1918, forcing the Kaiser to step down as the naval fleet struck and refused to sail to war, and also as anti-war strikes shut down Berlin. So it was this international women's, soldiers, and workers movement that forced Germany to surrender and thus ended the war. And the chain of events began with women workers in New York nine years earlier. Clara Zetkin, for her part, was elected to the Reichstag, where she gave a speech calling for the overthrow of Adolf Hitler shortly before her death in 1933. Well, in the 1920s, US unions went from 5 million down to 2 million members. And then the Great Depression initially further crippled labor as workers lost most of their bargaining power amidst massive unemployment. 
But as the economy began to revive, the biggest labor upsurge in our history began in 1933. As Nicole will discuss, the sit-down at General Motors turned the tide in 1937. That factory occupation actually sparked 477 similar sit-downs or occupations that consolidated labor's power in U.S. society in less than half a year. And amidst this giant wave, there were seven auto parts and manufacturing plants involving about 3,000 women workers in Detroit. In New York, women at Woolworths, Grands, and H.L. Green's Five and Dime stores sat down on their way into the department store employees union. There were Penn State tobacco women in Pennsylvania as part of the wave. And there were all of the hosiery mills uh, in Reading, Pennsylvania, that it was men as well as women and men's wives uh, picketing and striking there. All of this culminated in victory. So the depression labor insurgency in labor mostly did involve men, but women's union membership disproportionately advanced, growing sevenfold in just six years to 800,000 women union members. Men's numbers increased threefold in the same time period. The third largest of the brand new industrial unions, the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, was actually 40% women, led by communists, for which it was later expelled from the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO. The UE, actively pursued equal pay for men and women in its contracts. Women took leadership positions in that union and the union published an extremely progressive pamphlet on women's equality with special attention to the problems of black women by an anonymous author who later was revealed to be none other than Betty Friedan, who went on to found the National Organization of Women years later or now. Another 1930s new socialist-led union, the United Office and Professional Workers of America, contained a majority of women, including its executive secretary, Ann Barinholtz. And finally, in Texas and California, Mexican-American women like Emma Tenayuca and Luisa Moreno played leading roles in the rapidly rising Pecan Shellers Union and the United Cannery Packing House and Allied Workers. I'll finish by noting that the 1930s militancy never confined itself only to workers on the job. These rising unions formed mutual intertwined relationships of struggle with rent strikers, with organizations of the unemployed fighting for relief payments like the Workers' Alliance, with black community groups like the National Negro Congress and the Mexican-American organization El Congreso. In this context, women's auxiliaries rose above being merely supportive or subordinate components of the labor movement. The women's auxiliaries were transformed into a kind of elite strike force. The first successful sit-down of the time was the Akron, Ohio rubber worker strike of 1936, in which the women's auxiliary played a prominent role on the picket line, as well as organizing the commissary. 
the New York transit workers occupying their powerhouse, many of those workers mocked the idea of a women's auxiliary, but they found that the auxiliary suddenly threw up around the clock picket line outside, protecting the men inside and leading to victory in two days. The wives of the steel workers performed the same types of duties and they faced police violence, including hand-to-hand -hand combat alongside their husbands. But now to give us a better feel for what all of this felt like in the most important victory of the time and also in the struggle that created the most famous labor movement movie, I will turn it over to Nicole. Sorry, I was on mute. Uh, thank you. Um, as Avery mentioned, I'll be discussing two important events led by women in the labor movement in the early and mid 20th century. I found working on this project for Women's History Month particularly inspiring since these heroes, much like those we spoke about during Black History Month last month, are ones who made a huge difference in all of our working lives, but who are never properly credited. So I hope this presentation can be small, some small part of trying to do that. Um, so I'm going to be showing some clips from a couple of different movies and referencing some uh, other resources. Um, I just want to mention at the start that I will send out um, a document with all of these links so that you can check them out for yourself if you want, but I won't put them in the chat because it'll be kind of confusing, but I'll send everything out afterwards. So first, the Flint GM strike, which Avery briefly alluded to. So perhaps the most momentous one was the sit-down strike at the General Motors plant in Flint, Michigan by UAW workers, which took place from December 1936 through mid-February 1937. This event was the turning point for the labor movement in the U.S. as a whole, as it made the UAW a major centralized labor union instead of an unorganized group of local unions and officially unionized the auto industry, just as production was starting to ramp up leading to World War II and the suburbanization of the 1950s. At the time of the strike, GM was the largest corporation in the world, so the success and significance of the strike can't be overstated. This strike was a model of what striking should be. Women and men had equal roles, and there was a great deal of solidarity between black and white workers, a central theme of labor we have discussed previously. The women's group called the Women's Emergency Brigade was known as a quote-unquote auxiliary unit. As the, strike, as the strike developed, it became clear that that was not the case at all. Their work was crucial to what was eventually achieved, real recognition as a national union with explosive growth from 30,000 to 500,000 members within a year, as well as expansion to other major manufacturers such as Ford, a 5% pay raise and better general working conditions. The success of this strike would reverberate around the country, a major example being the success, success of the steelworkers union striking against United States Steel. The women who were active participants in the strike had their stories documented in a film called With Babies and Banners, Story of the Women's Emergency Brigade. Released in 1979, the film shows the reunion of some of the women, many of whom hadn't seen each other in years for the 40th anniversary of the strike. They share their memories and experiences and are still active in the labor movement in their older age, doing all they can to make sure women workers are treated fairly. The women who participated in the strike were both wives of male GM workers and employees themselves. They not only picketed inside, but uh, outside, but supported the strike by providing meals to those who were occupying inside. 
Initially, the film was produced and directed by, entirely by women and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature and influenced similar projects as well as women participating in the union and labor movement. I recommend watching the film in its entirety. It's about 45 minutes. And again, I'll share the link later, but I will show a few clips right now that also include footage from the time. So first will be a clip that illustrates what the conditions were like for women addressing physical working conditions, as well as issues still prevalent today, like sexual harassment. So just a moment when I, sh as I share my screen. Uh, okay. So, all right. Just a moment. Sorry, slow computer. Ugh. So sorry, just trying to get this to work. Okay. Okay. sent home, no sick benefits, there was no health and welfare programs, there was no social security, there was no unemployment or anything like that. All of that has been built since we founded the UAW. Closely, and if you had to take a break, 
Well, they had the matron timing you when you went into the restroom. We ran in there and ran out. The more you produced, more the more likely you would keep your job. The foreman wanted attractive women. So most of the girls were pretty nice looking girls or else they were back breaking workers. If you was the kind of a girl that would let a boss pat you anywhere you felt like patting you or if you would go out with him after work or something like that, you was pretty well assured of a job. But then if he got mad at you over some little thing, he could let you go just as easy as the one that wouldn't. In fact, they had a Lafayette uh, investigation and they found out that one whole department was being treated for venereal disease. Mm. And that was just because the foremans were using the girls and holding over their heads. If they didn't do what they wanted to do, they wouldn't have a job. Yeah, true. My husband worked in a very uh, uh, hot place in the uh, paint shop. And of course, when he'd come home at night, Quite often, I'd have to rub his back down with soda because it had peeled from the heat, the constant heat that he'd been in. The bodies had to go through an oven, and he often had to push them through there uh, in the course of his work. And uh, his back just cooked. My husband used to come up the stairs with swollen hands and just throw himself flat on the uh, floor, and he couldn't sometimes hold a fork in his hands afterward. The man was so driven by the speed up inside the factory that he came home unable to be a decent companion to either his wife or children, and she had to take an awful lot of bad treatment from her husband. When a person is driven beyond human endurance, you become just so resentful inside yourself, it's got to spill out somewhere. Very often, it would go to beer gardens to release all of the tensions and the threats they had received inside the factory. Their wives would be home just crying their eyes out because the money was being spent in a beer garden. Linwood was famous for its beer gardens and churches. And of course, the churches played the role of consoling the wives and promising them that no matter what they had to suffer here on earth, that someday in heaven they would be rewarded for their patience and their virtue. And that's all we had in Flint, Michigan. Churches and bars. Hmm. Motors was the world's largest industrial corporation at that time. General Motors was in Flint, Michigan. They were the big wheel here. They had the judges behind them. They had the mayor behind them. And a little man had no chance. You know, you were dealing with them for everything that you got. For instance, you buy a car from them. Okay, you finance that car through their company. They got your money. Even though you worked for it, they turned around and sold you and got it back from you. Mm-hmm. They owned the town, or got control of everything. All but me. They'll never control me. <laughs> okay, so that is just a sample of what we dealt with. 
Um, next, I'll be showing how they actually got in, eventually got involved in the strike and some of what they did once they got involved. It was in the winter season in 1937. And one evening, my husband didn't come home. And he didn't come home for two days. We did have a radio. And uh, they mentioned it, that there was a strike. The strike began at Fisher One. They were the first ones to strike. And when they struck, they sent the women that were working there out of the plant. And only the men set in. The uh, press and the radio were so eager to say that there was sexual mingling in the sit-down that they had to be very careful. And that's one reason that the women were asked to leave. They did go on strike. So then naturally, we went down there to find out what happened. And they said, well, we can't come home. We're sitting here. We're on strike. As well, now what are we going to do? Some of the women of the city of Flint, they came down to the plant, they yelled up to their husbands, this is a hell of a place for you to be. If you don't want to be home with me or take me out someplace, well, it's too bad for you, buddy. And I saw a couple of very fine union men that were really threatened, and they came down out of that plant and they were booed by their buddies. And that's when we decided to form the Women's Auxiliary. I didn't much care for the idea of my husband sitting in the plant, and of course I wanted to know what it was all about. When I went to the Union uh, Hall while Walter Ruther was speaking, because he was talking about seniority rights, pensions, and better working conditions in the plant, and I thought, gee, this is a good thing. So uh, I stayed at the uh, meeting to organize uh, more women into the uh, auxiliary. So, like I said, when they went on the strike that day, I didn't even know there was ever going to be a strike. And I imagine if they would have been, I probably wouldn't have been so brave to let him sit down because I didn't want him to lose the job he did have because we needed all the money. We bought a house for $25 down, $5 a month, and we had a hard time paying for that. And, of course, it was all very new to me because I had two small children at home, and my concern was home and the grocery store and back. But uh, I became quite concerned about um, uh, his role in the uh, sit-down and also to mention uh, the fact that uh, he had not been able to accrue seniority because he was a young black worker and he had been last hired and first laid off. So next morning we went down there and uh, as well just come out here on the picket line. Well, that was my first picket line, but I went. Nicole, I think we're losing the volume. Oh. <laughs> they, in turn, would bring up. Is this okay? Yeah, that's good. Oh, I think uh, that the scene before was just music, so maybe the music wasn't being heard very well. So I'll just skip. I'll just skip past that. 
made up our minds that we were going to be as big a part of it as a man. And we were, believe me. A few of the women started coming up with their husbands. A few of the factory girls decided that their jobs were at stake also. And they, in turn, would bring other women around. We were very optimistic. They needed protection, I thought. I was on the outside. I could do better there. We had to do something to help them to win this doggone strike. I was working down here in the kitchen, and uh, some guy from the hall come in and wanted to know who'd volunteer to take food to the strikers. And I said, I will. So then this boy here took the first food over there. Had a big old milk can of coffee and another full of soup. The police was up on top of the hill said, well, you don't want to go down there, lady. There's a lot of tear gas down there. I said, I've spilled that before. That don't bother me. Some of them say, oh, well, they just come out. They're on the make. 
and uh, so I no, I didn't wear any makeup. I let my hair go straight to let them know. And I had to tell a number of men off when I began playing a little more, you know, aggressive role. Then they thought perhaps uh, uh, there was a deeper reason why we were up there, and they called us uh, queers at the time. That was the term that they called us. She couldn't be too masculine. She couldn't be too feminine. You couldn't be too intellectual. Or men resented this more than anything in the world. She was in a damn, damn, never, never land. And I was just the worst thing in the world going down there with all the neighbors. They didn't have any part in it. You know, they wouldn't go down there at all, but they'd steal every bit of coal I had or put sugar in a gas tank or so I couldn't get down there. Lily Rose, she lives on that street. Every time I see her, I'll tell you, there's nobody but the old communists that's doing all of this. I said, well, if it is, there must be an awful lot of them. And now, though, they'll shut up and brag about the pension and this and that. They don't know how they got it either. Makes me halfway mad sometimes I hear them talk. We had friends, relatives, neighbors. They uh, called us all sorts of names. And B and I was, well, I, I was born here in the United States, and my folks were foreigners, you know. So, uh, well, they just thought that I was a genuine old red Bolshevik or anything else. And what did you think about that? I didn't care. I didn't, that didn't bother me because I knew what I was doing and I knew the purpose I was doing it for. I, I wouldn't have cared if the whole red <laughs> Russia would have been there just to help us out. Okay, so that's just a sampling of um, the experiences they had striking and some of the challenges, as you can see. So finally, I'm going to skip to the end and show them reflecting on their lives and what they saw for the future of the labor movement. Be done. I just felt so good to think that I had a part in it and got others interested and we got to where we're at. And I, I don't regret it. And if I had to do it all over again, I think I'd have more fight in me than I ever had to accomplish what women want to accomplish. One thing I think that uh, came of the women being active, it gave the men a different outlook on the ordinary housewife. Before, it had always been a housewife mm -hmm. or a mother. That's the only image they had. But after the union was organized, it gave the men a deeper respect of the working woman. Well, golly, you gained a lot, I thought, because we had better working conditions after that. And Foreman wasn't breathing down your neck all the time. <laughs> and without it now, I don't want to become of us. Right. It helped the whole country. The Red Beret woman became a symbol of a different new type of woman who was ready to sacrifice her life, as the men felt they were, in gaining the victories that we finally won from the world's largest industrial corporation. Following the strike, the emergency brigades were effectively dispersed there was none of the usual thing of financing or encouraging on the part of the men. What happened in effect, if you can imagine this, from the international on down, everybody in it, 
said, thank you, ladies. You have done a wonderful job. We appreciate it very much, but now the laundry is piled up, the dishes are piled up, and the kids need attention. Sorry, that disoriented me. So, um, take your time, hi. Okay, here we go. Okay, so, um, okay. So as we see, 
at the end, even 40 years later, towards the end of the 20th century, the women still had to fight to be heard and recognized. This has slowly improved over time with developments like the Me Too movement, but is still a long way from being made right even today. The woman who passionately spoke in that last clip, Janora Dollinger, was a lifelong labor and civil rights activist until her death in 1995. She was interviewed in a pamphlet called Striking Flint, which I'll share later, where she was described as the Joan of Arc of labor for what she did in Flint. She organized the UAW Women's Auxiliary and led the group of women who protected themselves and the occupiers from police and strike breakers with clubs when she was only 23 years old and was an equal partner with her husband in getting GM to agree to bargaining with the union. She suffered blacklisting and violent attacks for her unwavering outspokenness. This is just a sampling of all that these women did to secure these crucial worker protections. I strongly recommend watching the entire film to get the full effect of how they put themselves on the line and to learn more. So now moving on to the New Mexico Empire Zinc labor strike. So another significant labor strike that took place from 1951 to 52 by a miners union made up of mostly Mexican American workers against the Empire Zinc Company in New Mexico. This grueling strike lasted for 15 months. The main issues being protested were pay and housing discrimination. White workers were paid more and received better housing by the company. Since the workers' lives depended entirely on the company, particularly on credit to use at the company store, there was a great deal at risk in their striking. The strike grew over time as news of more violent clashes spread. After eight solid months of striking, the company banned picketers from coming to the picket line with a court order, with jail time and fines as punishment for resisting. But not about to give up, the men were replaced by their wives and some of their children. There was no legal action that could be taken against them since they were not workers. Though this eventually changed along with arrests and harassment by police, the image of, images of this had made national news. The company eventually yielded to the union's demands in January of 1952. They agreed to improve wages and benefits and housing, including providing hot water to the homes of the Mexican American workers. The events of the strike were dramatized in a film called Salt of the Earth in 1954, which was written, directed, and produced by blacklisted artists, part of the Hollywood 10, during the height of the McCarthy Red Scare. Its focus on the women's experience of the strike, as well as its use of real minors and their families in the film made it particularly significant. Those who worked on the film were harassed by police as the strikers had been. The local union hall, quote unquote, mysteriously burned down the day after filming ended, showing that the struggle is never finished. A further sign of the potential the film showed. Soon after its release, it became the first and only film to be blacklisted in the United States. This was seen as a badge of honor, however, as it added the tag added the tagline banned, the film the US government didn't want you to see. So I'll show you now a sampling of the film. Um, it's a trailer, but since it's four minutes long, um, since film trailers used to be a lot longer than they are now, it gives a pretty good feel for what happens in the film. And then after that, I'll show the ending of the film, um, just so you can see a dramatized version of uh, how the strike worked out. So just a moment. Okay, sharing screen. Okay. 
So this is the short, the, this is the trailer. Thank you. 
Okay, so that kind of cuts off in a weird place. So that is why I'm gonna show the last few minutes of the film. was another zoom bomber <laughs> uh, okay i'm gonna start again
Bessie. I'll talk to New York. I think maybe we'd better settle this thing for the present. We didn't know then that we had won the strike. But our hearts were full. And when Ramon said, Thanks, sisters and brothers. Esperanza, thank you for your dignity. You were right. Together, we can push everything up with us as we go. Then I knew we had won something they could never take away. Something I could leave to my children, and they, the salt of the earth, would inherit it. As you can see through just through just these two examples, the women involved in these and many more actions are nothing short of American heroes. In the case of Flint, much of the auto industry has been decimated and unit activity has declined, as documented in Michael Moore's 1989 film, Roger and Me. The years long Flint water crisis showed just how far this middle American town had fallen due to lack of opportunity. And at a time, i.e. a pandemic right now, when women, particularly women of color, make up a majority of essential workers more likely to be laid off and to leave the workforce to care for family, we would do well to remember the women like those featured here, what they fought for, how they fought, and their spirit of cooperation for a common goal. Thank you, and apologies for all the tech issues. really great and thanks to Nicole for tackling the tech issues with really no notice Victor set things up for us but didn't feel well enough to do that during the meeting so Nicole thank had you, to do Nicole. double duty mm -hmm. with her presentation thank you Nicole yeah thanks Nicole so um much longer than usual presentation but as you can see we had a lot we wanted to get across we just have like 12 minutes left and just wanted to just use that time for anyone to make any comments or ask any questions they wanted. And um, if you're new and you haven't been here before, welcome. And we'd love to hear from you or, or what anybody um, would like to say or ask. So it's, it's open to the group and just, just start speaking if you wanna say something. Hi, Avery. This is Maria. Can you hear me? Hello? Yes, go ahead, Maria. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, yeah, um, I just wanted to you, say, Maria. That, go ahead. I just wanted to say I enjoyed the video. Um, women's uh, labor history. Uh, that was really, um, it was very inter interesting. And I remember a couple years ago, I went on a, um, with SEIU to a uh, I believe it was, I can't remember what it was, but I met Dolores Huerta, which she was one of the ladies that was very important during the march with Cesar Chavez. Yeah. Um, and I was so proud to know her because um, I was fortunate growing up. 
However, I have a great uncle, a great aunt that actually worked the fields during the Cesar Chavez time and they picked apricots and they were involved in, um, I'm not sure how deep they were involved in with Cesar Chavez, but they did pick apricots during that time. And um, I'm just proud that, you know, I had family members to be able to actually potentially be engaged in that. And um, I'm just a proud um, his Latin, Latina woman. And I'm glad to see that we're learning a lot about our, our women because women truly are, I believe, not everybody might believe, but I believe we are the backbone of, um, of uh, every man. <laughs> I believe we truly are their backbones. And um, yeah, I truly do believe um, behind, you know, behind every great man, there's always that great woman that's keeping, that's standing him up, you know. Um, that's holding them up. So yes, our women need to be um, be able to be put out on the front, and they be they need they need um, to be able to um, to we we need to be able to get that that pe that space that we are important and we are um, a big part of, um, uh, of of what everybody else does. You know, we are um, we were. I'm just so happy to be a woman that can um, actually strong a strong woman, a leader. I'm so proud that um, I'm, I'm in the union and I, I, um, I'm a leader and with Drusilla and Avery, we do the, um, you know, we do orientation for the union and um, yeah, I'm just a proud woman. <laughs> I just wanted to let you guys know that was very interesting and thank you for presenting that. Yeah, I think Dolores is still, still around. She's still, She's still fighting. She's still around. She's, I just looked her up. She's 90. So. Yes. And all her kids are involved, I believe oh, okay. as well. Yes. Cool. Yeah. It's amazing. Other people love to hear from anybody thoughts about the presentations about the, women I'll, in the labor movement. Hey, Avery, this is Drusilla. Hey, so, you know, the, yeah. Uh, to uh, add to what Maria was saying, you know, there's a, a lot of women that don't have uh, a man, they, that they, they are single parent that are running the household. And um, it's a way to, to be able to speak to, you know, I'm a single parent. And, you know, the reason why I got involved in you, because, I, you know, you get tired of people being mistreated, you know, and, and, you know what, what they're doing to these employees are not right. And that's, you know, that's one of the main reasons that I'm so involved because I can't take it anymore. I, I know how they done me. I just can't see someone else having to go through what I went through without uh, union representation, somebody uh, uh, supporting them throughout uh, what's going on. So, you know, we've come a long way, you know, don't under, estimate us because on nowhere we here to stay <laughs> and that's it thanks Drusilla still have about else was jumping in or go ahead whoever wants was yeah hello can you hear me 
Yeah, Leslie, go ahead. Oh, yeah, hey. Um, yeah, I'm with Drusilla um, in terms of uh, the sentiments she expressed about being tired of seeing um, workers' rights being abused um, at our workplaces, um, especially um, I think for a lot of women in the workforce, a lot of the work that we tend to do comes with a lot of emotional labor, um, which can be such a um, aware on someone. Um, and like when I think about social workers or nurses um, that do such hard labor, right, with their bodies, but also emotionally, um, I think there needs to be a lot more education um, for like supervisors and administrations um, of what emotional labor really kind of costs to their workforce, um, something that should be acknowledged. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, I'm being distracted by a cat, stop it. Um, but yeah, I'm with Drusilla in, um, in what she expressed about um, just being so tired of it and literally sometimes all it takes is just one person saying, no, this isn't right. Um, which, you know, encourages a lot of um, more people to stand up and also start a movement. So um, very interesting presentation. Thank you so much, Nicole and Avery. Um, highly enjoyed, highly enjoyed tonight's presentation. Thanks.